John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. You are 30 years older than I am. You and your whole lousy generation believes the way it was for you is the way it's got to be. And not until your whole generation has lain down and died will the dead weight of you be off our backs. You understand? You've got to get off my back. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where this week we're continuing our exploration of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner in honor of the great Sidney Poitier. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a writer, producer, and host here in San Diego, California, and um, excited to be walking back into this world, Steve. I think we had a fantastic discussion in part one, if I do say so myself, uh, and so I'm looking forward to seeing uh, where we end up at the end of this movie and do we settle the debate whether this is a Sidney Poitier movie or a Spencer Tracy movie? We shall see. It's going to be very hard for you to convince me of the other ways, but I'll tell you. I'll tell you what I think. Part of Ditto. it is that it depends on how we define our terms as always. Mm-hmm. So, so my guess is we have different definitions Probably. of of how you say whose movie it is. Right. Um, but right now we got a lot of people coming to this dinner oh, yeah. and Joey has to go back to the kitchen and inform Tilly that there's going to be one more guest. Guess who's coming to dinner now? The Reverend Martin Luther King. <laughs> more it's, steaks. Which is funny because we're actually recording this on Martin Luther King Day. Oh, how funny. Yeah. yeah. And isn't this one year before, sadly, he's assassinated, right? Because because I'm in 67, this film. No, it's it's less. It's about six months from now. Oh, wow. Because he was assassinated. We'll get into it. He was assassinated, I think, two days before the Oscars were supposed to be. Oh, my God. Yeah, so it's coming up real soon. We're back outside with Matt and Chris. Look, could we get out of here for a few minutes? Can't we take a ride or something? What are the others doing? They're they're meeting Peter and Judith for a drink, and then they're going down to the airport. Yeah, yeah. All right, come on. Uh Well, come on, will you? (laughs) And so they head out, and they get in the car. This whole sequence is hilarious, I think. He's so frustrated, Steve. He's just, (laughs) he's like, I've got to get out of my house, because I came home just for a stopover to go golfing, and now all this is happening, and I cannot get my head straight. So I got to get out of here. 
I totally feel him, by the way. There was oh, a yeah. there was a moment about a month ago. There was a lot of stuff going on in Karen in my life, and we were on a Zoom call, and there was and I was editing, and I just had to go, I gotta go. I gotta get I gotta <laughs> can't handle all this right now. Um uh what's funny, so this is a process shot. We've talked about it a lot. They're sitting mm-hmm. in a studio, someone's bouncing the car, and there's a film going behind them. And I just want to point out so much of the way this movie is made is old Hollywood. Yeah. They didn't shoot on a location. This is a big, the house is just a big set. All their clothes, like we're moving into this era when people are buying clothes off the rack for people in movies because they want it to look real. You know, if you think about In the Heat of the Night, the other Sydney Poitier film we've talked about, like that's like everything's kind of real. Yeah. And here they built every costume. We're in this process shot now. They're not shooting on location. Um, And they, uh, are driving in the car. Isn't that the place where we got the good ice cream? Let's get some ice cream. Oh, Matt, it's after five. Oh, a little ice cream can't hurt. <laughs> and they pull into Mel's Drive-In. Yeah. And this is in San Francisco, and Mel's Drive-In is still there. And this is the Mel's Drive-In is what American Graffiti was at, although it wasn't yeah. this particular location. By the way, Mel's Drive-In, although it, oh, it never didn't serve African-Americans, they had protests in front of them in 1963 because they wouldn't let african-americans in the front of house as waiters wow and so not that that's you know like it's not the center of the civil rights movement right it is interesting that at this particular restaurant that happened little battles everywhere man this scene i'm not entirely sure why it's in the movie but man weird scene it's so having been out to dinner with older people Mm. this is so it's true Oh, no. oh, dude, we both are glimpsing our future. In oh, this God. Scene. I hate to break it to you. We are. We're glimpsing. Anybody over 40 is glimpsing their future in this scene because that idea of not remembering which what the flavor was and then hoping the young person has somehow <laughs> found the memory in the back of your mind to tell you what flavor of ice cream that was. I mean, I'm not going to say that that's happened to me before. Uh, recently, I'm just going to say that I understand the feeling and thank God he got there. there, there there's, two, there's two different things. One thing is I can't remember what ice cream I had or where I had it. I right. totally had that. Mm-hmm. The other thing is assuming that the waitress yes. will, will know. Cause she goes, yes. Oh, well, when I had ice cream before I had a, a special kind of flavor that I liked very much, but I can't remember what it was. I'll bring you the list. Here. Oh no, you, you must know what it is. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Just, uh, I just assuming going out to dinner with my grandmother. I had like this exact scene, <laughs> and, 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 I'll, and I'll tell you something else about it that really just occurred to me. Yeah. It's also about privilege, because yeah. everyone knows who Matt Drayton is. He's right. a famous person in this city. Good point. He gets yeah. different treatment where he goes different places. Yeah. So it's the expectation that people will know him and remember him when he goes places. Right. Right. Um. And he, she brings the list and she's talking about flavors and she mentions Oregon boysenberry and he's certain that's it. Um, Spencer Tracy is really cute in this. Oh my God. Just fantastic. Um, And then uh, as they're waiting for the ice cream, Chris says, I think Mike was right. But Joey is lucky. The work he's doing is, is so important. She'll be able to help him with it and share it all with him. It's the best break any wife can have. I just picture a twenty a twenty three year old young woman in San Francisco hearing that line right now. That is such a that's such a dated line, even yeah. in nineteen sixty seven. You know, 
And then she talks about that the best time was when we were struggling, when things were really, really hard. Mm-hmm. That narrative is in a lot of movies. <laughs> I actually don't think that's sometimes it's so, there's truth in there. Yeah. I mean, but it's, but it's also, isn't it also kind of nostalgia? Yeah. Like you're like, oh, it was great when we just had each other and there wasn't this extra drama. But the truth is, that's only in the moment because all the other times, you're very happy to live a life of luxury and have yeah. things taken care of and have a nice house and you have a maid and um, I'm sure they have a butler, even though a butler wasn't shown, but like you have all that for yourself. So, you know, there, there's a, there's a perk to that, but yeah, the idea of like this, this idea of, of being longing for the old days of being poor, I trust me is yeah, I'm with Steve. It's not a, a good experience. I mean, I will 100% say that money does not buy happiness, mm-hmm. but I'll also say that in those good times where I'm sure they had wonderful, romantic laughing in the apartment where they didn't have a couch and they're sitting on, I'm sure they had those, but they yeah. also had how the fuck am I going to pay rent? Right. You know, right. like that stuff or, or the, the newspaper is going to go under and yes. what are we going to do? That's right. not fun. You know, or he's off on another one of his crusades. Yeah. What's this going to cost us? And I don't mean financially, yeah. possibly physically or emotionally. Yeah. yeah. Um, the waitress comes back with the boys and Barry. He's very excited. And then oh. watching Spencer Tracy's face when he takes a bite and goes, this is not the stuff. I never had this stuff before in my life. <laughs> I want for any actors that are listening to us, I want you to watch that scene. The nonverbal acting is so integral to any film, especially film. Right. Mm-hmm. That moment where he takes the bite, there is a process where he slowly realizes it's not the right thing, then realizes like which way is he gonna go on this, and then eventually just decides to keep it, even when he's frustrated about the fact that it's not the right thing. It's great. It's great to watch. It, it, well, this is where I go, I don't think this scene is necessary, mm-hmm. but I really love it. It's real it's well, really fun. Well, Steve, you're a director. Maybe uh, if I can appeal to that, maybe this is put in here so that you feel a warmth for Spencer yeah. Tracy so that when he comes back to the house, you have a different perception of who he is. I think that's totally what it is. And it's mm-hmm. also the here's a person who has been the main obstacle through the whole movie. So giving right. us a little warm, fuzzy feeling about him is nice. Yeah, yeah. good point. Uh, and we cut to Sidney Poitier, shirtless, changing his shirt and in walks Tilly. She does not <laughs> knock. And goes right into him. Well, let me tell you something. You may think you're fooling Miss Joy and her folks, but you ain't fooling me for a minute. You think I don't see what you are? You're one of those smooth-talking, smart-ass just out for all you can get with your black power and all that other troublemaking nonsense. And you listen here. I brought up that child from a baby in her cradle, and ain't nobody gonna harm her none while I'm here watching. And as long as you are anywhere around this house, I'm right here watching. You read me, boy? You bring any trouble in here, and you just like to find out what black power really means. Tell me why there's a Dutch angle in this. I don't know. Right. I, I, I feel, I don't, and I don't believe Tilly would just barge in on him. I, Not I, fair. I Not mean, fair. you know, she is, she is working in this house of rich people. She's been there yeah. for 20 something years. Yeah. Um, uh, they, they're making, they make it really intense. And I'll say something else is that apparently this is one of the scenes where Sydney was upset that he did not say anything back. Really? Yeah. This is where he was like, I, I would have said something. You know, because she just lays into him and then walks out. I think it works better because he gets his chance to say something to Spencer Tracy, to say something to his dad. If he also said something to Tilly, I don't know. I like it that he doesn't. You know, he's a kind of respect for the elders in the tribe type thing, you know? I don't know. Uh, 
And I, I, but I totally, totally like that Tilly loves Joey and is protective of him. Yes, yes. Absolutely, yeah. That was very good. If I come in again, remind me about the Oregon boysenberry, will you? <laughs> and she does the goal like, sure, daddy-o. Sure. <laughs> sure. Uh, and he's so excited about this that he wants to take some quartz home for dessert. Um, and then he is backing his car up and slams right into a roadster. And it is, of course, a black guy that's driving the roadster who yeah. wigs out on him. Yeah, absolutely gets upset at him, climbs over there, threatens him. Yep. Not threatens him physically, but just gets upset with him and says, You stupid idiot! Why can't you look where you're going? Sorry, son, but your car is so low, I couldn't see Of it. course you didn't see me! You weren't even looking where you were going! And so I think it's an interesting scene because you're watching in San Francisco a black man dressing down verbally a white man mm-hmm. here, and there is no kind of rushing to kind of stop the black man from doing it. He's very much an equal in this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and even a little bit more than equal because he's the aggrieved party. Um, and Spencer offers him money. was a 60 bucks to fix it and all tells him to pipe down, gets in his car and drives off. But the fact that he's sitting there saying there ought to be a law is a great moment because it mirrors, you know, kind of what Sidney Poitier as a black man would is experiencing in his house feeling out of place, Mm. feeling old, feeling useless, having someone say there should be a law that bars you from doing something you want to do. So it's really powerful to have that moment in there, even though that roadster is really doing it, really kind of going out there. I think it's a powerful moment. Um, And there's one line in it, and I'm going to – I don't know if it was intended symbolically, Mm. but one of the things the guy whose car got hit says is Spencer Tracy says to him, sorry, son, your car is so low. I didn't see you. Mm. And he goes, of course you didn't see me. You weren't looking. Oh, that's a great one, Steve. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. Mm. Yeah. You didn't see me. Yeah. Yeah. As a member of society, of course you'd run me over. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I, and I, well, and I think that's kind of what this whole movie is, even though, Matt Drayton on one level has seen these people has been a, you know, crusader for civil rights and everything. Yes. But he hasn't seen them as equals. He hasn't seen them as people that he could, that his daughter could marry, you know? Right. He hasn't seen them that way. What the hell is it today? Less than 12% of the people in this city are colored people. I can't even have a dish of Oregon boozenberry without running into one of them. Oh, white people problems. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then we cut to a nightclub where we see the woman singing this, our theme song, yes. uh, The Glory of Love. And and everyone is in geisha uh, dresses because this is some kind of Japanese restaurant. I have to tell you, having grown up in San Francisco, this really is a thing. Yeah. Is that because okay. there was such a big Japanese population. Right. Is that part of like the exotic thing that the young people would go to mm-hmm. was Japanese things. There was a oh. real obsession with Japanese culture. Okay. Um when I was growing up, when I was a mm-hmm. kid. And they're talking to their friends, uh to Joey's friends. This is a scene I think is almost entirely cuttable. Um yeah. because there's there's no conflict in it and the friends are just this is awesome. Congratulations. Yeah. And the only thing that really comes out of the scene is uh that they convinced Joey, why are you even waiting two weeks to fly to meet him in Belgium? Why don't you just fly tonight with him? Yeah. <laughs> the other thing is just like, it's also, this is where I just go, man, rich people. Because yeah. the buy the last minute plane ticket is really expensive just because I'm is. cheap. <laughs> yeah, but this is also another moment where as a 37-year-old man, um, the doctor, Sydney, could have been like, 
no. Yeah, you know, slow down. Made, yeah, slow down. We made the plans. This is what we're gonna do. I know best. Yeah. You know? Oh no, 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 you you don't you don't say to your fiance, I know best. Oh, probably true. I apologize. I mean, they say that internally. You say <laughs> that internally. You think Sorry that. about that. Yeah, you think that. You don't say that. Yes. Um Good point, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Matt and Chris get back home. I love Catherine Hepburn's outfit. In fact, her, all, her dresses throughout mm-hmm. the whole movie are gorgeous. And they are exactly the kind of old Hollywood, there was a costume designer who designed this for this scene kind of dresses. Yeah. You know? yeah. No matter what it is, or when you say it, you're going to have to tell them how you feel. I need more than one day to make a decision like that. It's the silliest thing I ever heard of. But I'll tell you this. I am not going to try to pretend that I'm happy about the whole thing because I'm not. And if the doctor's decision depends upon that, then it's just too bad. I'm totally with Spencer Tracy, by the way. Yeah, I am too, to be yeah. honest with you. This is a lot of pressure they're putting yeah. on him uh, and, and and again, asking him to kind of acquiesce to the whole situation. And it's not, and it, honestly, when you're looking at it now, and maybe because I'm older, it's nothing to do with black and white. It's more a matter of like, this is a dad who is now having his daughter coming in after meeting a guy for only 10 days and wants to run off and get married to this guy, go off to Belgium. And you have no idea what this, uh, what the back, even though this guy has an incredible background, you're still yeah. just kind of nervous for your daughter and he feels put upon and you know, his rights matter too, as a human being, as a dad, he's got some rights in this situation as well. So at least in my opinion, he does. And so I, I totally feel him as well. Yeah. Well, and, and his decision is like, could really, really hurt his daughter. Mm-hmm. They have put him in a position and said, Either you shut the hell up or you hurt your daughter. Yeah, like, right. That's exactly. not a nice spot to be. I was trying to think of analogies. And like, I was thinking like, well, what if my kid came home and said, uh, tomorrow I'm joining the Peace Corps or I'm joining the army. That'd be another one. And it's not that I would be 100% opposed to my kid joining the military, but I would be like, wait, this is a very serious decision. You know, or, or if Jax came home and said, dad, I want to be an actor. It's like, right. I love actors. Yeah, Some yeah, of my yeah. best friend, the person I'm looking at right now is a fine <laughs> actor, but I bet you would have a lot of trepidation if your child said they want to be an actor. Wouldn't you? Yes, I would. Yeah. I have a very serious conversation with them. Yeah. But this is also why I joined the army without telling my parents until after sure. I signed the contract, because sure. I knew they'd talk me out of it. But yeah, yeah you're absolutely right. You know, and now in retrospect, and it worked out, but in retrospect, I would have absolutely been like, Let's have a conversation about this. Yeah. Yeah. And it's again, it's not that you're saying no, it's you're right. saying this is a really big decision yes, and let's talk through it a little bit. Right. And I'm thinking only of Joey's welfare. I have nothing against him personally, but he's a grown man and he behaved irresponsibly in the first place by letting this thing happen. Now he wants me to be happy about a situation when I happen to know that they'll both get their brains knocked out. Now that is where it's about race. Yes, absolutely. That is it's, he's concerned about it. Yeah. Yes. And again, and there is a difference to being concerned about your kid going into right. an interracial couple and being a racist against that. They're, they're not exactly the same thing. Yeah. No, you know? Okay. Yes. Absolutely. Um, and then he, and then he kind of turns on her and says, and I know how you're reacting. You're so wrapped up in Joey's excitement over the whole thing that you are not behaving in her best interest. Yeah, and she starts to get teary-eyed. Yeah. You can see it in Catherine Hepburn's eyes. Yep. Um, and she walks kind of through the room. It's, it, it is fake golden hour. Yeah. it's sort, And the music is more somber, and she's kind of looking around. And I, to me, this feels very much like, oh, my happy, happy home isn't necessarily going to be happy mm. in the future. That's how it feels to me. Yeah, she's in a little bit of a daze. Yeah. 
and she she stands looking out at the bridge or looking out at the painting of the Golden Gate Bridge, yeah. and, and a tear goes down her face. Uh, Stanley Kramer said that that Catherine Hepburn could not only top cry on cue, she could make a tear fall at the exact same moment. Cut it out. That's what he said. That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, also, she's with her, the love yeah. of her life who's dying. So who's dying. Right. T- tears are not maybe that far away. This is his last movie. So you're right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're at the airport. <laughs> Joey's now telling her mom, oh. ah, I'm not leaving in two weeks. I'm going to leave tonight. Yeah. Um, Deal with it. Yeah. And while that's happening, we see John's parents get off the plane. This is B. Richards is his mom. Roy E. Glenn Sr. is dad. Oh, they look like awfully nice people. His mother looks lovely. And now Joey's put John in this horrible position of like, he has no time to tell his parents. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, he doesn't have any separation. She's about to walk up. And so he goes, I guess I should have called you back again because there is this one thing I, I, uh, I should have. I didn't mean to write to you about it. Yeah, there's one thing I didn't explain, Dad. And he's kind of laughing in his cute, (laughs) awkward way. I'm afraid it's going to be kind of a shock. And just as he says it's going to be kind of a shock, they see her. Yeah. (laughs) The shocked expressions on their faces are great. (laughs) Yeah, the dad especially. Oh, his mouth is just open. Kind of half wide open. He makes introductions, and and Joey is lovely and warm and friendly, meeting the parents. I can explain. And I can imagine what's going on in your mind. But we can explain. (laughs) And now we cut to the bathroom. Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy are getting ready for the dinner. He's shaving. He's got the shaving cream brush. She's, they're both looking in the mirror. Most of the shot, by the way, is in the mirror. Mm-hmm. And by the way, it had been almost 10 years since Catherine Hepburn had appeared in a film in color. And she was really concerned about her makeup, about how she looked, because color is not as forgiving as black and white. And so this was a big deal on the set all the time. Spencer Tracy had no patience with it. Yeah. With it, her her making sure that the lighting was right and her makeup was right. And Spencer Tracy wore zero makeup through mm. this whole movie. Wow. Yeah. That's what I'm told. Huh. Matt, I'm not trying to give you an argument. There's nothing I can say that you don't know anyway, but it's important that you understand just how wrong I think you. I believe you're making the worst mistake you've ever made. In your, I think you're going to regret it with more bitterness than you've ever known and for as long as you live. I think it's interesting, by the way, that she starts two sentences and can't finish them. Well, you know, sometimes, man, you know this, and and people listening know this as well. It's like sometimes the di- sometimes what's not said is as important as what is said, right? So, her not finishing these sentences, I think you can finish them in your own mind how you think she would have, or what you think she would have said, or how she would have finished them. And I remember watching it this time around, thinking, "Oh, she doesn't finish the sentence," and then I went. Oh, what would she say here? And I love that. You know, it gives you a great place to go in your mind because you've already had this time with them, you know, in this relationship. Well, and I think how often do you think that she's told him he's wrong? Right. Like this? Yeah. I don't think she ever has. Brother in real life and here. Yeah. So there must be a lot of levels here. As you mentioned earlier in part one, their relationship where he kind of yeah. was the, the man, domineering guy in the relationship. Yeah. So, yeah. There's something else. I'm surprised it hasn't occurred to you. 
The doctor will accept whatever you say to him because he's a terribly sensitive man and because he said that he would accept it. But Joey won't. The most obvious mistake you're making is in underestimating your own daughter. So let's stop on that one. Sure. Is that true? Yes. 100%. I think that is 100% true. The mother always knows her daughter. Well, and what he'll be doing, because, and this is again why what they're, the position they're putting him in is unfair, yeah. because it's not just that he will be shattering her relationship with the man she loves, mm-hmm. but he would also be shattering her image of him. Yes, absolutely. She will never be able to look at her father, who I'm sure she idolizes in the yeah. same way. One you can recover from, another one you might not be able to recover from. And one thing more. Until today, I would never have believed that I could say such a thing. But when she fights you, and for what it may be worth, I'm going to be on her side. Such a great moment, man. It's great. And he goes, well, I'd never believe you could say such a thing to me. And takes that shaving cream brush and puts it in his glass of scotch. (laughs) (laughs) Which is just that bit of comedy there. Yeah, there's a nice bit of comedy, right? And it's good, because this is kind of like probably the most they've fought seriously in a very long time yeah. i would imagine you know well i mean i think part of what this movie is doing is it's it idolizes things so it, yeah, yeah. it makes an ideal version of Sidney poitier's character right. their love is true love there's never a moment's question that they aren't perfect for each other in every single yeah. way good point and and matt and chris are a perfect couple yes you know rich older you know like smart articulate mm-hmm. involved They're that's what all of this is about been and, through the wars together. Yeah. yeah. And 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 John's parents are are a perfect couple too. Yeah. In in a in a way. Yeah. Um, by the way, apparently, uh, as much as Catherine Hepburn was criticizing Catherine Houghton's acting, mm-hmm. Spencer Tracy was constantly criticizing Catherine Hepburn's acting. Oh my God. What and would, would do impressions of her and would say things like, You're acting like you got a feather up your ass. Wow. Yeah. Spencer. <laughs> I it's so funny because she obviously adored him, but yeah. there are things I hear about him that sound like he was a difficult guy to deal with. Yeah, but maybe on the outside, you know, yeah. maybe they they have that relationship, you know, or she was she's steely enough to be like, he might be right, or you know, maybe he was getting them. But I, I don't know. I'm not trying to excuse that kind of behavior, but people's relationships are weird, man. People have weird, th- and they say like if someone was to catch the back and forth at Lady Outlaw, and I have sometimes where we talk about, you know, like you know. She wants to gnaw my cheeks off or I want to <laughs> things. I mean, there's things like that, like in Punch Drunk Love when he's like, I just right, want to yeah, a sledgehammer to your face. Like you, on the outside, you're like, what the fuck is going on here? But on the inside, it's a different relationship, you know? So maybe he knew that there was his way to motivate her. Or the other side is he was a bit abusive and that's not cool. So, yeah. well, well, for years, um, when I would come up to my office, like sometimes at night, Karen, mm-hmm. I would sit down and watch TV. And sometimes at night, I would either want to come up here to work or I was going to watch, you know, something that she wasn't into, like a Marvel movie yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah. And I would always say, I'm breaking up with you. That was the <laughs> way I always said it. And we stopped about two years ago because Jack Jack's heard it and didn't, and was upset. Oh, wow. And uh, so I stuck, cause it was just a joke, you know? Right. Right. Um, you never know who's listening. Yeah. yeah. Well, and there are, I mean, Karen and I had all sorts of jokes, which if one took them out of context <laughs> or the way that we said them, because yeah. you know me, I also have a horrible sense of humor. Right. I mean, I have a sense, of, I like you have a dark one. Yeah. I, yeah. I like to comment on 
yeah. whatever's right in the middle of the you know the elephant in the room that's where my sense of humor lies which is not always appreciated right you have to get to you have to get to know that about steve morris because yeah. <laughs> when mean, it comes think, out of left field you got to be ready for it yeah i don't think i don't think people like listening to the podcast would think that i have a dark very dark <laughs> sense of humor i don't know if it comes out that much here they would be wrong but i did <laughs> yes it does <laughs> um we're driving with john and joey and the parents and how much do you think they talked since they met Joey at the uh, when they got off the plane? Very little. I That's would imagine right. very little. Yeah, just like I'll ca- I guess I'll call a cab and is that your suitcase? And that was it. Like I think mm-hmm. that's all that they've said. I was going to ask Miss Drayton how her mother and father reacted to Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to ask that too. Please call me Joanna. Oh, they were shaken all right. I don't think I've ever seen them so surprised. I can't blame them for being sort of stunned by it all. Well, and you couldn't blame us if we were a little stunned, too, could you? <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't appear unreasonable if I suggested that the two of you are behaving like a couple of escaped lunatics, would I? <laughs> By the way, he's saying this to a young white woman, you know, in this yep. situation. So very interesting. This whole thing happened so quickly. It's like trying to ride a rocket. I mean, we didn't plan it that way. It just happened that way. And yeah, it's like, dude, no, this is your plan. You, yeah. you, you did plan it this way. I'm telling you, when we start, when we're going to start, we were going to, we made a decision to do this movie. Sorry, yeah. it took me three senses to get that out. Um, I in no way thought I was going to have find some fault here in uh, in Sidney Poitier's character, but I can't, I can't deny that I do. Doctor John, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, you're, you're grown, ass, you're grown ass man, you're grown ass man, dog. As you, uh, Cedric the Entertainer said, you're grown ass man, dog. Yeah. You could make actually make decisions. Yes. Yes, don't let the 22-year-old or 24-year-old be the one that dictates where you're going in life. We've got one evening to discuss it, and if you have any objections, you'd better raise them in a hurry, because in exactly four hours, we're going to be on that plane and gone. Well, I don't think I could list all my objections in four hours. I think I'd need more like eight hours. (laughs) And again, John tries to make a joke, and they all die. Well, you've only got four hours, so you'll just have to talk twice as fast. (laughs) <laughs> by the way i want to take a moment here if i if you don't mind steve uh, for these two actors because i think they're fantastic I do too. um b richards uh, she was nominated for an oscar for a golden globe she won a couple of emmys um in for her appearance in frank's place and then later on the practice in 2000 bro wow that's how long she was acting for and here's what's so in- interesting about her i was doing a little bit of research before we started doing the show she was a member of the communist party from the 1930s to the late 1950s, she was a member and an organizer after becoming friends with Paul Robeson. And she participated uh, in movements affiliated with the Communist Party, with the Bolshevik Revolution, with the, the, the revolutions in 1956, and then sponsored the National United Committee to free Angela Davis. Mm. So a fascinating woman who, even though she was black and could have been blacklisted and could have been kicked out and could have not had any work in Hollywood. She was incredibly proficient as an actress or prolific, prolific as an actress, rather both on stage and screen and television and, and had political beliefs, her own political beliefs and adhered to them until she saw the, the, what they led to there, obviously. And so just fascinating to see what she was able to do and live till she was 80, 80 she, she, years old. 
She was yeah. a huge activist. Yes. Apparently, J. Edgar Hoover had a big file on her. Yeah, no surprise. In, 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 addition, said, yeah. in addition to being really outspoken, she also was a columnist who regularly wrote yes. articles. I mean, this is, a, which is why, and we'll get to it, she did not like this part. Oh, she, really? She had real issues with the part. Wow. Ozzie Davis, who's a buddy of hers, said she hated the part. Wow. Um, Catherine Houghton said she could feel her anger. And, and Catherine Houghton basically said she hated everything that was going on and she was right to like, that's like how, like she, and she, she felt, um, and we'll get to the scene yeah. that she was being forced to play the most self-contained, like no hard edges, nothing could possibly be offensive, almost like the kind of made character that she would have been asked to play for 30 years, right. not going to make any waves really yeah. safe. Yeah, exactly. Well, it, it's funny we're talking about it now we're not at the scene yet but like you you said something really perceptive about me in part one which is you said when i was talking about tilly you oh. said you want to keep the loud parts quiet and the and the quiet parts loud <laughs> and i was thinking about it because we recorded that you know four or five days ago yeah, yeah. is that that is ex actually exactly right because <laughs> i would have if i was the writer director yeah. i would have made tilly more subtle and i would have given mom way more yeah. character than she has you know? and maybe if you would do it now and i don't mean that terrible burning rap mac remake right. i mean if you would do it now maybe that is the route to go you know maybe that is the route to explore for sure and uh one more thing roy glenn the dad he mm -hmm. he, he only lived four more years after this film oh wow he, he died of a heart attack in uh, at 56 years old he had been a part of the amos and andy show for years mm. for five i mean he worked for five decades this guy in radio and on television and the jack benny show been on Dragnet, was on Peter Gunn, did a number. Uh, he was also in uh, Raisin in the Sun with Sidney Poitier and Ruby D. So fascinating. And did the Support Your Local Gunfighter, the um, the film with James Garner, that kind of launched James Garner, he died the same year that film came out. So oh, just wow. insane. Yeah, only 56 years old, bro. But by the way, the one other thing we didn't say about B. Richards is she's also in the heat of the night. Yes, right she at is. the same time. Yes. Uh, playing is. a very, very different kind of part. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we're back at the house. Uh, Catherine Hepburn comes downstairs in another gorgeous dress. And there's Monsignor Mike mm -hmm. flirts with her a bit. And then. What can I get you to drink? Well, oh, well I, I like scotch. Uh, I'll be drinking wine. Yes. Oh. Oh, I'd have a little drop of scotch anyhow. <laughs> and then she bursts into tears. Yeah. We're we're in trouble, Mike. We're in we're in terrible trouble, terrible trouble. And she tells him what's going on, and tells him about the ultimatum. Tells him Joey, Joey doesn't know. The two of them are on their way in from the airport with John's parents, but neither of them knows that Matt has decided. Well, Matt has decided. That he can't approve. And Mike is shocked. That's not true. Please tell me it's not true. Monsignor Mike and Matt, while he's getting ready, trying to pull on a pair of socks. <laughs> I understand how you feel, Mike. I understand how everybody feels. But you know, you have to understand something, too. They boxed me into a hell of a corner here. I'm not going to tell them they can't get married. I don't even have the right to do that. I love that line. Yeah. Because I love that he is putting himself in, in, in what his rights actually are. Mm -hmm. They are grown people. They yeah. can do what they want. I can't tell them not to get married. 
And as he does that, he's pulling out the sock drawer, rips it out of the cabinet. They don't have the right to come in here and expect me to be happy about something. Any normal... Oh, for God's sake. Matt, you're on the point of destroying all the happiness that is in one of the happiest families I've ever known. That line is really a little extreme. Well, yeah. I mean, because this whole movie is so binary. It's like... Mm -hmm. You will e- either you do this and everyone will be happy and everything will be perfect or you don't and everything will be ruined. Yeah. It's like, look, if they are one of the happiest families they've ever known, families weather storms. That's true. actually what families do. True. Very true. Have you any appreciation at all of how that woman has behaved today? From the moment they walked in, she was all for it. Though there were no problems at all. But there are no problems that Joey and young Pettis don't know about. I don't think that's true. Certainly not of Joey. Right. I don't think Joey knows what it is like to be part of an interracial marriage. Yeah. She doesn't know what those problems are going to be. True. I think I know why you're angry, too. Not with the doctor, whom you obviously respect. Not with Joey or Christina. Not even with me. You're angry with yourself, Matt. You're a pontificating old poop. (laughs) You're angry because all of a sudden and in a single day, you've been thrown. You're the last man in the world I would have expected to behave the way you are. You're not yourself. You're, you're off balance. You don't know who you are, what you are, or what you're doing. Again, this is where I, I, I'll leave it alone after this. But, but like, I, they're acting like he's acting like a racist. Yeah. You know what I mean? Instead yeah. of acting like a person who got really surprised about two hours ago and is trying to figure it out. Yeah, but they're also calling him out on his supposed progressiveness yes, as well. absolutely. 100%. Which I think is... A part of this that's essential to kind of highlight it, they're making it clear, like, look, you've said all this stuff, and here's the moment for you to yeah. stand up, and you're not standing up. Yep. And that matters. I happen to believe, I happen to know they wouldn't have a dog's chance, not in this country, not in the whole stinking world. But let me ask you, let me let me turn the question around on you, Steve, that you sometimes ask me. What do you think's going on here? Why is he so angry about this? It's funny. I Right as you asked me that, I had a thought. Mm. here's the thought i have Mm -hmm. you're the crusading newspaper man right you've been putting out a positive message to the world because that's what you believe in right how much of the shitty stuff of the world have you seen yeah right i think he's seen a lot of the shitty stuff probably and that and this is the thing it's so funny i don't mean to relate it to me at all but that's exactly what i'm about to do (laughs) when we had our last political conversation on outlaw nation Yeah. yeah and you asked me kind of a, are you hopeful question or what do you see in the future? And I gave probably the most depressing answer mm. I had ever given publicly. Yeah. And after it, I felt really bad. I felt I should have found a way to turn it a little more hopeful to have something, some silver lining there. And I didn't. Right. And and the reason I bring it up is that I bet he's been holding in. He's seen the shittiest side of the world yeah. and put out the hopeful image all the time. Yeah. But now it's his daughter like, I think he's scared. I think he's real scared. Well, it's like anything else. It's great to talk about something in the abstract, but when it actually hits home, it's a whole nother ball game. Yeah. And so you have to actually deal with, I mean, I think that's what we see when I don't want to get too political, but it's what you see with the COVID situation, right? Everyone's like, don't get vaccinated. Don't get vaccinated. Then they get the COVID and they're like, you got to get vaccinated. This is real. This is serious. It's not until people experience it or on the other side of the coin that all of a sudden you have a different perspective. Because it's great to talk about stuff in the abstract when it's not happening to you. But when you actually have to put your philosophy in motion put, or, or challenge it or test it or be it, it, 
you know, um, be a participant in the philosophy is where you really understand if you believe this as much as you claim to believe it. And I think this is where Matt's being questioned a little bit by everybody around him, because it seems pretty obvious that he doesn't hundred percent believe this. Well, and I think too, there's a difference between not being a racist yeah. and not believing racism exists. Right, 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 right. You know, like you could not be a racist and still look in the world and go, there's a lot of really scary things. I mean, it's like, yeah. Yeah. And, and so I think Matt is aware of a lot of stuff. Yeah. That absolutely. his daughter is going to experience. Yeah. Um, but I love what Mike says because, because Matt just said, you know, uh, they don't have a chance in this country, not the whole stinking world. And Mike says, they are this country, Matt. They'll change this stinking world. That's a great line. It's a great line. And he delivers it so well. Yeah, sure, sure. 50 years, maybe, or 100 years, but not in your lifetime. Maybe not even in mine. Which is a weird line. I guess, you know, Mike is older, but yeah. the reality is, is Spencer Tracy's going to die. Mm. Real, His lifetime is real short. True. I wish with all my heart you could be restrained. And if I were 10 years younger to prevent you from going downstairs... I believe I'd make some sort of effort to wrestle you to the floor. That'll be the day. That will be the day. <laughs> um, and we hear a honk because... Is that the car? Guess who's coming to dinner? Yeah. They're here. Catherine Hepburn is a gracious host and welcomes them in warmly and takes their toast. May I get you a drink? What would you like? May I have some sherry, please? What a lovely room. Have they ever been in a room like this? I, I, I would imagine no. That's what I'd imagine, too. Yeah. And John goes off to make some drinks, and they sit down, and they sit down very close to each other, and then it's just completely awkward. Uh, did you have a pleasant flight? Very pleasant, thank you. The view of the sunset was breathtaking. <laughs> Only took 40 minutes. 400 miles. And then Dad comes downstairs. We get some some introductions. He asks, did you have a nice flight from Los Angeles? And all together, they say, Only, Only 40, 40 minutes. minutes. <laughs> and to which Joey responds If you're going to talk about flying You could talk about flying to Geneva Because John and I are hoping to persuade All four of you to fly over for the wedding Would anybody like to talk about that Before I go up and start packing <laughs> <laughs> There was a time I don't remember exactly what the circumstances were But I was pretty young It was after a funeral I think mm -hmm. it was after my grandfather's funeral okay. And we were at Um uh, my grandmother's house and there was some bickering about something. I don't remember what it was. Yeah. And I, as an, a 10 or 11 year old kid, like said, Hey, you shouldn't be bickering about this. You know, like someone just died. Like I felt I could just tell everyone that they're wrong <laughs> to all these grownups. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was like, okay, Joey, you, you're really clear on what you want. Right. Right. <laughs> you're just like going for it. I would like Mrs. Prentice to see the view. The view? What the hell are you talking about? What view? From the terrace. Before it gets too cold, would you cater? And she wants to separate Mrs. Prentice out and talk yeah. to her. May I explain the situation to you? Or try to? Yes, please. I wish you would. Well, first I, I have to ask you, forgive my being so abrupt and so direct, are you shocked by the fact that John... That your son is involved with a white girl. Surprised. It never happened before. I guess it never occurred to me that such a thing might happen. As much as I think B. Richards didn't like what her character had to do, yeah. I think she, both she and Catherine Hepburn are great in the scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it wouldn't be true to say that I'm shocked. 
I think that's a really interesting line, and I wish yeah. I, I wish we could explore that a little more. Are you Mrs. Drayton? Well, I, I, I think I was at, at first this afternoon, um, because it came as a complete surprise to us, too. But now I know how they feel about each other. Joey's still very young, Mrs. Prentice, but she's not a child. And they're deeply in love with each other. What I do like about how they write Mrs. Prentice is they write her to be extremely perceptive. Yes. That is that even though she's very self-contained, she is very perceptive because she then says, Mrs. Drayden, are you about to tell me that you'd be willing to approve the marriage, but that your husband won't? Is that it? Yes, that's it. My husband won't either. And And I do like what Mrs. Prentice says. She says, If we're going to accept the thing at all, it seems to me, We'll have to trust the two of them and accept that they know what they're doing. Which I think is a good, I th- I'm totally with her. I, t- yep. I think that's great. Yeah. Yep. They seem to be having quite a conversation out there. You know, it might do no harm if we could have a few words, Mr. Drayton. <laughs> um, and they head off to the study. This is great. You know, what's weird is, is Matt did say they were rushing it a little bit outside. Yeah. <laughs> but apparently Prentice is, you could, could, I could totally feel that there's been stuff building in him. Oh, yeah. For a long time. And this is the first time he's going to let some of it out. Yeah. I don't know you at all. And I certainly wouldn't want to offend you. But are you some kind of a nut? <laughs> are you going to tell me that you approve of what's been going on here? No, Mr. Prentice. I wasn't going to tell you that at all. <laughs> Which Prentice doesn't hear. Yeah, because if you do, well, you may be a big successful newspaper publisher and I'm nothing but a pensioned off mailman, but you are right out of your mind. <laughs> and I love Spencer Tracy's look. <laughs> yeah. You could just see the, oh, man, this guy yeah. didn't hear me. Now <laughs> I'm dealing with this. You were talking with him upstairs, Monsignor. Have you any idea what Mr. Drayton is saying to my father? And he, of course, won't actually say what Matt's thinking, but he does say. Well, I can tell you one thing, Doctor. I was very sorry to hear that you intend to withdraw from the situation if you encounter any opposition. What I like about that is that I think John, at this moment, is reg- is starting to regret the choice of me, of the ultimatum. Yeah. Um, I, I think, think he's start- too- yeah, he's, he's realizing that was a both a tactical mistake and also like an emotional mistake. Yeah. Catherine Hepburn comes in, tells him that his mom wants to speak with uh, him and she goes upstairs to Joey who's packing. What you're saying is that you feel practically the same as I do about this. That's right. But even so, Mr. Prentice, you know, this is a hell of an unhappy situation for both your son and my daughter. I, uh, well, I think it would be best if you talk to John yourself. This is fascinating, Steve, because this is almost like a chess game. Yeah. yeah. The pieces are moving. And it's like, as Spock likes it, it's three-dimensional chess. The, the the pieces are moving around on multiple levels of this house, right? That mm-hmm. Catherine takes one queen, takes the other queen outside to have the conversation. Yeah. The kings are left to have their conversation. Then the queen goes upstairs to talk to uh, her pawn, and the other queen goes to talk to Let's her make her a, like a like a knight, I think. Sure, a knight. Fine. <laughs> Both of them knights, yeah. And then the other queen goes to talk to him. And the two kings, one king says to the other one, you go talk to your son. I'm going to possibly talk to my do- my uh, right. my knight. Or you go talk to your knight. I'm going to talk to my knight. So all this political maneuvering yep. around the situation is fascinating. 
Yeah, it, it, I think that's exactly what it is. Everyone is moving the pieces to c- try to create an advantage. Yes. You're totally, yeah. totally right. For their side, yeah. John, I've lived with your father for almost 40 years. God willing, there'll be a lot more. And even though I've only known about this situation for one hour, I feel the same way Mrs. Trayton does. Which is also where I go, like, she hasn't... Catherine Hepburn had a chance to observe the relationship a bit. Mm-hmm. She really hasn't. She says Joanna will never give you up. I guess it depends upon how much you want her. I think what Sidney Poitier does in the next few lines, because it's not a long moment, is yeah. amazing. Yeah. And this is kind of, this is why I go like, again, contrasting within the heat of the night, contrasting with, you know, raising the sun with uh, to serve with love. This level of kind of romanticism and vulnerability and passion, I don't think he got to play this particular gear that much. Yeah. You know, and he's really good. Want her. I want her. You know what it's been like for me these past eight years. I felt like I never wanted anybody again. But, Mama, these last few days with her, it's like... I'm alive again. And that's all he gets to say. Yeah. Your father wants to talk to you. Does he? Mm. He's in my study. You're right. The chess moves have changed. Mm-hmm. So now the king is talking to the other queen. Yep. It's funny because <laughs> the chess pieces are black and white. <laughs> oh, I shit. Didn't even think about that. Great point, dude. <laughs> well, you brought up the chess metaphor. Yeah, true. But the um, black and white thing, I didn't even consider that. I've been talking to your husband, Mrs. Prentice. He seems pretty much upset by all this. I know. Your wife says you are too, Mr. Drake. Well, not upset exactly. It's a very difficult problem. And this line is great. For whom? For you and my husband? (laughs) And she says, again, this is very penetrating. I think you'll solve your problem, all right? All you have to do is tell them you're against them. That's all. And you'll have no problem. And, and by the way, I don't actually think that's true. I think it's a great line, but not true. Yeah. Because telling your daughter she can't marry the man she loves doesn't mean he doesn't have a problem anymore. Right, right. You're not going to tell me that you're happy about this relationship. Her reply is fascinating. I'm curious what you think about it. This is not a night for talking about happiness, Mr. Drayton. This is an unhappy night. It's... I think because there's not this like no one's on the same page so the unhappiness stems from the fact that this should be a celebratory thing yeah and everyone has their own opinion on it and people are now politically maneuvering to make this wonderful celebration of love now they want to drag it back into some sort of semblance of their reality and make it not happen or make it wait for it to happen. I mean, it's almost like their relationship is like civil rights legislation, right? Mm. There's a huge contingent of people at the time who thought we were rushing things in the 60s. Just because they're out there marching in the streets, why do we have to give them what they want, right? There was this real racist point of view. And the truth is civil rights, in terms of um, becoming a bill, and all these things are like the 60s, it steamrolled through the 60s. And mm-hmm. Johnson signed the bill. It wasn't Kennedy, ladies and gentlemen, right. Johnson. But like from 60 to 68, or yeah, I think it's when it was signed, like that 
was such a fast yeah. rise in it. And I think in a way, and I don't know if this was in, uh, Kramer's intention, Stanley Kramer's intention at all, the relationship is being told to wait like civil rights legislation is being told mm. to wait. Like, what's your rush? You'll get around to it. It'll happen. Wow, what's what a great rush? point. Wow. Just thinking about it. Yeah. And and so this idea that she says it's not a happy night, in her way, she's almost saying like, we can't even celebrate this victory because no one's on the same page. And this could be a beautiful thing where a black man and a white woman get together and go off and have a wonderful relationship and can be a symbol of change for our, and bring our people together from both sides and show that it can be done and it's not a problem. And no one's happy about it. And, and, and the all except Joey. You know, because John yeah. has his own worries about it as well. Joey's the only one who's 100% happy about it. So, first of all, I think the idea of waiting and civil rights in relationship to waiting in this relationship is brilliant. So, that that's just a really fascinating idea. Thanks, the, the, thought, the thought that I have is, yeah. like, as a parent to varying degrees, you have an image in your head of what your child's life is going to be. Hmm. And some parents much more so than others. And I think both the Prentices and the Draytons yeah. had put a lot into the life their kids are going to have. Right. I mean, the, the, the amount of sacrifice that the Prentices made to build, make their son capable, give him the opportunities to right. be the great person he was capable of being. Yeah. They've got put a lot into that. And I think in a very different way, so have the Draytons for Joey in creating like an environment that where she could be the kind of person they wanted her to be. Yeah. And then along comes this situation. And regardless of what happens, those images of their futures are shattered. Yes. To some degree. Yeah. They're shattered. If, if Matt says no to them, yeah. that's going to mess a lot of things up. Yeah. And if they say, go ahead and get married, well, that they're going to have a lot of pain. You don't want your kid to have pain. Yeah. And there, and so it makes sense to me why she says this is an unhappy night. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Okay, we've reached a scene that we could pretty much spend the whole episode of The Cinephiles on. <laughs> we're with Sidney Poitier, or we're with John Prentice and his father. Mm -hmm. um, my understanding is this scene was not in the script. Wow. That okay. Sidney Poitier insisted that they have add this scene. Yeah. That there were no scenes of black people talking to other black people. Wow. You know? Yeah. Like, cause he doesn't say anything to Tilly. Right. And so he never spoke and he's like, no, we need to have a scene that's not with the white people, yeah. you know? Um, and I think this, there's a lot about this scene <laughs> yeah. to deal with. Um, and I think it's an amazing scene too. I, it, it, there's a lot of stuff that happens. Yeah. It starts with dad saying, son, you've got to listen to me. Now, I'm not trying to tell you how to live your life, but you never made a mistake like this before. I'm going to pause briefly on that. If your kid does everything that you want them to do, yeah. even if you're not vocally telling them how to live your life, yeah. it's only when they don't do what you want them to do that you have to tell them. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. Because um, I think my image is that John Prentice was a pretty perfect kid. Yeah. Yeah. And had to be. You know that you've been nothing but a source of pride for me and your mother your whole life. But you don't know what you're doing. Now, this affair here, it all happened too fast. You said so yourself. But you've got to stop and think. Which, again, I'm kind of with Dad. <laughs> Stopping and thinking wouldn't be a bad idea. Mm. Have you thought what people would say about you? 
Why, in 16 or 17 states, you'd be breaking the law. You'd be criminals. Which we have to say, at this moment in time, yeah. is true. Yep, absolutely. And say they changed the law. That don't change the way people feel about this thing. You know, for a man who all his life never put a wrong foot anywhere, you're way out of line, boy. That's me to decide, man. So just shut up and let me go. You don't say that to me. The same shut up to dad moment. Yeah. What do you think about that, Steve? He's 37, by the way. So I'm a 10-year-old. Well, it's it's funny. The I have I have multiple thoughts about it. I have a I have thoughts about this one moment with when I when I was a ten year old, <laughs> where my dad it was, it's just silly, but like we're ha- ha- we're having a family fight, yeah, yeah, and I was upset, and I had been holding a uh, uh, like a pillow in front of me, yeah, and it, it doesn't really relate to it, but it's just what popped into my mind. And my parents sent me to my room because I was not I was in trouble, and I stood up and I just angrily threw the pillow down, yeah. And actually threw it right in my dad's face. It wasn't intentional. Oh, no. And my dad grabbed my arm. And with more intensity than I ever seen, he said, you get to live your own life, but you will never disrespect me. Mm. And I went, (laughs) (laughs) and I, my dad was not a person who he almost, he never lost his temper. Right. But I bet your dad, he has a strong grip. Oh, oh, absolutely. That's so a that scary, moment, meaty paw to be having yeah. had on your arm. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think sometimes, you know, he's a grown man. He can yeah. tell his father to shut up. I, but I also think like, it's also like the culture at this time, that was maybe a bigger deal than, than it is today. Yeah. But also, what do like, you think about it? Also, it's just, you know, like you don't trust anyone over 30, right? That's the mentality back in the late sixties and that whole thing. And so, even the way he said, man, like the way he says it. And Sydney is really interesting in this scene. He is. Because he's symbolizing. And I and I, I, don't, I didn't, you know, I didn't listen to any kind of um, uh, director's commentary like this or, or his commentary on it. But I think he is symbolizing the young black generation in that moment. Yes. You got to get off my back, man. Well, that's what we're going to get to. Yeah. Right, right. And that's in, in this man. It's the, the way he uses man here is really powerful. It, it almost distances himself. It separates the father-son relationship and makes it more of a um, black man to black man conversation, which mm-hmm. is fascinating. Yeah. Well, let me let me ask a different yeah. question, which is: Has he ever said "shut up" to his father before? I, I don't think so. I, I think, think he's, so like either. I said, he's always been a source of pride. Yeah, he didn't go. You're always a source of pride, except that one time a couple of years ago when you told me to shut up. No, he said you've always been a source of pride. This is why I think this is knocking Mr. Prentice on his ass because he's like, I had no idea you were going to go this route. And let's be honest, we haven't said this in the whole show. I don't think like the idea of again a black man of such prominence and such achievement taking a white woman for a wife rather than a black woman for a mm-hmm. wife. That's a big thing for black women. I'm not speaking for black women, but certainly I've heard this many, many times through the years where that's viewed in the black community from some members of the black community as an insult to the black women. You couldn't find a beautiful yep. black woman. You went with a white woman uh, and a young white woman. No less. You know? Well, and again, it goes to, here. Yeah. it goes to, there are consequences for the choices they're making. Oh, sure. I mean, when, when the Prentice family goes home and tells their friends, yes, there's going to be reactions to this situation, you know, and we could say those reactions are racist and we could say those reactions are antiquated, whatever we want to say, but there will be consequences. That is, that is for real. Dad's at being said, shut up to, he goes off. Yes, he does. You haven't got the right to ever say a thing like that to me, not after what I've been to you. You know that and I know that. Yeah, I know what you are and what you made of yourself. 
but you know I worked my ass off to get the money to buy you all the chances you had. You know how far I carried that bag in 30 years. 75,000 miles and mowing lawns in the dark so you wouldn't have to be stoking furnaces and could bear it out on the books. Have you heard this, some version of this speech? Yes. From my dad, yes. Yeah. Multiple times. Yeah. Did you ever... Did you ever uh, suffer for food on the table? Did you ever not have clothes on your back? I gave you all of that. Painting those houses. Do you think I like getting up at three in the morning to go work in the banquets and help those? You know, all of that. And and you know what? He was right. You know, obviously at the time, you're just rebellious and you're lost and you don't know what you're going to do with your life and you're scared. So you get mad at him. But in retrospect, when you look back on it, he was right to kind of pull that out and talk about it. And I'll tell you this, Steve, this 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 response from Sidney Poitier to this comment was mind-blowing to me when I first saw it. Because I yeah. never thought to counter it with this point of view yeah. that he's about to uh, spill. But I do think the father has a right to say to him, you don't disrespect me as your father did to you. Same thing. And I've done, I'm sure my dad said that to me multiple times. It was sure. um, so, yeah. I, I, this is why I think this is an amazing scene. I think this is the, it's the, it's the most powerful scene in the movie for me mm -hmm. by far. And part of what Agreed. makes it amazing is I think they're both right. Yes. They both say things I don't like, Yeah, you know, and they both are speaking really important truths Yeah, because I think dad has sacrificed for his son. That yes. is not bullshit. Dad has right. suffered his entire life to hope his son have a better life. That's for real. And then yes. what he says about mom. I tell you, there were things your mother should have had that she insisted go instead for you. And I don't mean fancy things. I mean a decent coat, a lousy coat. It's a lot of guilt he's putting on him, though. It is. You know? It is. Yeah. Well, it, it, this is the, well, it, it's hard to separate it out because yeah. it is totally, he's laying, it's totally true. Yes. He did make these sacrifices. He did work hard for his son. His mom did go without things, even just a decent coat. Um, which, by the way, it is part of why they're dressed so perfectly. You know, like I, I, I wish they not that they would not be dressed really nicely, mm -hmm. but maybe I would have scaled it back a little bit. Yeah, because people that can afford to jump on a plane at the last minute aren't the people that necessarily worked the way that he says that they worked and maybe they're just, they got a good pension and they're really great now. That's fine. Yeah. But anyway, but the other thing is that your sacrifice for your child has nothing to do with who he falls in love with. Right. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. He's not doing something to them because he fell in love with this person. Right. You know, right. we go outside in the middle of this moment, cut the scene in half, mm -hmm. which is an interesting choice. We're going to leave for a while. Those two young people need each other. Like they need the air to breathe in. Anybody can see that by just looking at them. But you and my husband are... You might as well be blind men. You can only see that they have a problem. Are, are the two dads blind to their love? Is that how you describe it? Um, what do you mean by blind to their love? Well, the point that Mrs. Prentice is yeah. making is that they're 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 totally invulnerable and blind to romance to love to mm. relationships to the emotions yeah. that's what she's saying yes so this is a valid point but by the same token the reason well, the wisdom that comes with age is why you look back on these moments and 
feel the way you do. You worry because they're both coming from a place of worry, yep. whether they're, you know, the bluster and the yelling and all of that. It's from a place of worry and love and care for their child. It isn't a place of trying to control their children. It's a fear, you know, yep. like uh, um, Spencer Tracy says over and over again in the movie, like, they're going to get their heads kicked in. It won't happen. It'll be a bad situation. And Mr. Prentice on the other side, he's like, you're going to break your mother's heart, all this kind of stuff. So there's a lot of drama around this situation and she's trying to slow the train a little bit yeah. and say hey remember when you were young remember when you loved and you cared about someone and you, it was it was incredible it was world ending and old men forget because it's true we get more hardened as we get older we get more cynical we get more um we just question the world more we get more worried about uh lose the losing power the our our, our our testosterone goes down. Our masculinity gets affected by it. All the things that we have made as a foundation of our manhood disappears. At least men like this, I would say. Men like this. And so when that disappears, then you start to become more grumpy and more stubborn, more frustrated. Um, and if you're not more level-headed, these are the ways that you approach something that could be really beautiful and glorious and symbolize young love again. You approach it with a arms folded with an eyebrow raised and a skeptical attitude. You know? yeah. So I think that's what she's saying. I don't think she's wrong. Her next slide is fascinating. I believe that men grow old. And when, the, when sexual things no longer matter to them, they forget it all. Forget what true passion is. If you ever felt what my son feels for your daughter you've forgotten everything about it my husband too it's interesting just her saying sexual yeah. things is shocking to me right I, you know like you're in a strange house because she's basically saying you telling this white guy yeah. this rich white guy she just met yeah. i think sex you don't have sexual things anymore like that's a weird thing to say to someone <laughs> um well and it's a window into her relationship with oh yeah right yeah she just said that she doesn't have sex with her husband and hasn't for a long time. I think right. that's what she just said. You knew once. But that was a long time ago. Now the two of you don't know. And this strange thing for your wife and me is that you don't even remember. If you did, how could you do what you were doing? She's B. Richards is great in the scene. Yeah, she is. Uh, yeah, it's not. I, I, I totally understand why she doesn't like the scene. Yes. But her voice, Steve, is like on a high wire here. Yeah. Right? It's just up there. I think you don't remember. Like you just hear the way she's saying it. I'm not doing justice to it uh, with the imitation, but there's such an, a, a brokenhearted earnestness in her voice, like a sad acceptance to this situation. You know, and it's she's so uh, beautiful in this scene, for lack of a better term, uh, in her performance, you know, and she shows real wisdom, I think. Yes. In the scene. yes, yes. Yeah, it's it's, it's funny. It, like th this is but this is again where I go like this movie is not about his parents. Right. You know what I mean? Like they don't have the ice cream scene. Well, they don't have scenes where you kind of get yeah. to know who they are. Right. There's just this scene where she has to behave and she, she she's walking a tightrope is, you know, right. You know, so we're back with dad and John. 
I don't care what your mother says. Maybe she's gone haywire, too. This is between you and me. That's the first thing you said that makes any sense, because that's exactly where it's at. I, I love when Poitier has these little bits of sort of because he's so, as you said, I think when we were talking about before, yeah. he's so noble and royal. Yeah. And when he goes, man, <laughs> and where it's at, where it's at. That's it just, at. Yeah. <laughs> and dad starts to talk. Yeah. And what I mean to no, say is you it, said what you had to say. You listen to me. When, man, when he's intense, he is so intense. He is. It's unsettling. Yeah. This next part of the speech. As much as I really feel for dad, when dad says, I walked 75,000 miles and that he owe me, you know, I did this for you. I totally feel for dad. Yeah. But I also feel for the son who says to his father, you say you don't want to tell me how to live my life. So what do you think you've been doing? You tell me what rights I've got or haven't got and what I owe to you for what you've done for me. And then this is the moment you were talking about. Yeah. I owe you nothing. If you carried that bag a million miles, you did what you were supposed to do. Because you brought me into this world. And from that day, you owed me everything you could ever do for me. Like I will owe my son if I ever have another. I had never, ever thought of it in this way until I saw the movie. And it was so, I remember like a diamond bullet through my brain, as uh, Colonel Kurtz might say. Like I just remember that the logic of that completely turned me around on a fa- on the father son relationship, and you know Chris Rock had a bit about this years ago in one of his stand ups where he's like, he goes, man, you know, here's some. He was, I think he was talking about other black men that say like, man, I take care of my kids as if that's some kind of point of pride, and he's like, oh, I remember you're supposed bit, yeah. to take care of your kids. Like that's the least you're supposed to do is take care of kids. That's not something that's some, somehow unusual. This is something you're supposed to do. And so I love that. And I connect, I've always, con- when I heard that bit, I connected it immediately yeah. to this scene. It's just, that's what you're supposed to do. And so it was a great comeback. And I'm sure there were a lot of people cheering in the aisles, a lot of young men cheering yeah. in the aisles when they heard that. I'm going to say two slightly contradictory things, sure. which is the one is not only do I think that John is right, mm. that you made the choice to have wait, this wait. child, which John junior or, or senior? junior Sidney okay. Poitier. Not only do I think that he's right. You're, you made the choice to have a child. Mm. You owe that child to do the best for you. Not only do I think that I think his dad agrees because that's why he walked those 75,000 miles, right? That's why he did it because yes. he owed this kid. He owed this child every fucking thing he had. Yep. Yep. And that is what in fact he did. Yeah. And, but I also think that doesn't mean that John doesn't owe his father. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? These yeah. things are not mutually like, like when my dad got sick, and I know this for you, when your dad got sick, yeah. you went back to help. Yes. Because you owed them. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Like when someone, because owing. And because is, I wanted to. Both. Yeah. yeah. Well, and because that's what relationships are. You know, you take care of someone, you take care of someone and then they take care of you. Exactly. But you don't own me. I think it's just a coincidence, but the similarity between the sounds of the word of owe me and mm-hmm. own me are really powerful in this scene. Yeah, interesting. You know? Yeah. Cuz saying that you owe me is like saying that I own you. Right. If you owe the bank a ton of money, well the bank kind of owns you. Yeah. You know. Yeah, that's a good point. You can't tell me when or where I'm out of line or try to get me to live my life according to your rules. And then this next part, man, this is I'm not <laughs> you might have noticed not a black man. <laughs> <laughs> And I do not grow up in any circumstances remotely like Dr. John Prentice, but him saying, 
You don't even know what I am, Dad. You don't know who I am. You don't know how I feel, what I think. And if I try to explain it the rest of your life, you will never understand. Yeah. I felt that with my dad. Yeah. So you know? did I. I mean, especially as, you know, like I'm American, very much gravitated yeah. to the American life. My father, uh, immigrant from Bolivia, he loved America, but he also very much adhered to his customs and wanted to raise, wanted me to act or behave or, or be raised in a certain way. And yeah, I, trying to explain to him what's going on in the real world as a youth was one of the most difficult conversations, you know? Well, and I bet when you said, dad, I want to be an actor. Right. That was, I bet that stuff, maybe he understood. I shouldn't put, I don't want to put words in your mouth. What yeah. my dad didn't understand that part of me. My yeah, dad yeah. was, he was a linear, he was a very brilliant man, but he was a linear, you, you get the job, you get married, you live the life. Yeah. You know, that just the American thing. And I'm not like that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And he, he we couldn't talk about those things. He didn't understand them. You are 30 years older than I am. You and your whole lousy generation believes the way it was for you is the way it's got to be. And not until your whole generation has lain down and died will the dead weight of you be off our backs. You understand? You've got to get off my back. <laughs> I love what he said that. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's the thing, isn't it? Like, that's what he's saying. And that's why I think he symbolizes young black man to old black man at that yeah. time. Like, you got to get off my back. You got to get off my back, man. I can't carry the male bags of baggage that you have about what happened to you growing up. And this was, you know, again, neither one of us are black, but certainly this is something I've read. This is something I've had conversations with some of my friends who are black about the, you know, situations like this. My best friend legitimately black. He is of, of that age where he you always had say that, that he's legitimately well, black. Because like, it's it's going to be phrase. illegitimately well, black. You know, when people say, oh, my best friend's oh, right. black, you know, I'm, right, I'm always right, trying right. to counter to that. But like he's, you know, he's been my best friend since I was 15 years old, you know, and so he, but he, I've had those, I've heard from him those conversations and, and had heard how he interacted with his dad and spoke with his dad and that kind of thing of putting the weight on him you know, expectations, you know, and he falls more in the Sidney Poitier camp, my friend Maurice. Yeah. So it's like he took on the weight of that, but he also understood that it's like, you got to give me some space. And that was, I think, what was happening there in the late 60s. You were seeing the older generation that had been through some of the worst racism in this country and were what? One generation removed to the or two generations removed from their family members being slaves yeah. in this country were telling their young black men, yo, this is a tough world. I mean, we saw it in Falcon and winter soldier with Isaiah Bradley when, cause that's 1940s when right. the stuff that happened to him happened to him. And he said, the world's not ready for a black captain America. And this is the same kind of conversation that's happening here in this interaction. And Sydney, uh, John jr is trying to say, man, I'm trying to live a better life, but I can't be your avenging hero or avenging warrior for what happened to you. You got to let me live my life, you know? And, that's what he's essentially trying to say, even at 37. You know? Well, and I think, so A, mm -hmm. even though my background is far, far away from this, the pressure of the expectations of my family, yeah, and my, that's real. Like, I know exactly what that feels like, yeah. even, I, even though I don't know at all what this feels like, right. if that makes any sense. Yeah. The other thing I think is I think what dad has said is totally true. He did walk exactly the path that dad wanted him to walk yeah. up until this point. And I think that, you know, he got, I'm not saying he didn't love his wife and his son. I'm sure that he did, yeah. but like, it was very much in the, 
I am being the person that the world expects me. I'm being the perfect version of the world's expectations. And I think what he tries to say to mom about wanting something, I don't think this is a thing that he's felt. And he, yeah. and it's part of what he's saying is that he's different now. Yeah, He's yeah. in love. He has other things that, that he, for the first time, as he says in a long time, he wants something. Yeah. You know, and now dad is saying, you have to do what I tell you to do. Yeah. And then I love this too, because he's been so harsh with dad and, yeah. and, you know, fairly brutal. And then he, he turns away and they turns back and the saw so- as much as he was intense before the softness. Now he says, dad, you're my father. I'm your son. I love you. I always have. And I always will. It's a great moment. It doesn't change his mind, though. No, no, no. John Sr. still has that angry look on his face. Like, yeah. I'm, you're still wrong here. In his yeah. Mind. Yeah. And then he says, and this line is as, this is the, cru- there's a lot of stuff in this line. He says, but you think of yourself as a colored man. I think of myself as a man. I think, I don't know if you were, you obviously have a very different background, but I was raised with the idealized idea of a colorblind society. Mm-hmm. Of course. That that we would all just look and not, it wouldn't matter. You're Latino and I'm Jewish. Right. It wouldn't make any, we all just treat each other like people. Yes. And I don't think that is the philosophy today. I no. think those, well, and and I and, and not necessarily a bad thing. Like mm-hmm. when someone says, if, if I were to say, or someone says, because you hear it, well, I don't see color. And it's like, bullshit everybody well, sees color yeah you know like you can't you know we all live in the in that mm-hmm. there are a lot of people who say no i don't want to give up my jewish heritage my latino heritage right. my african-american this is who i am yeah that that's part of my identity it's not my whole identity necessarily right. um and so at this moment that that we the, i don't know what year the slogan black is beautiful was created but mm. it's right around right now yeah it when this movie's happening he's saying I think of myself as a man, not a colored man, right. you know? And so this is part of why there's this reaction against him, you yeah. know? Yeah. And yet it's a fantastic line and a fantastic moment. I've got a decision to make mm-hmm. and I've got to make it alone and I got to make it in a hurry. So would you go out there and see after my mother? And he just sends his dad away. Yeah. His dad just kind of, you know, a little bit of a daze walks out. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Wait, one more question for yeah, you yeah, on yeah. the scene. Do you think this is the first time he's ever stood up to his father? In this way, absolutely. Okay. What do you think? Yeah. I think it's first. I think that's why his dad is in such a daze. Yeah. Because I'm sure his dad has trotted out the, I walked all these miles oh, absolutely. many, many times. And this is the one time finally where he's had enough. And that's why I think he reacts so strongly. You got to get off my back, man. I love it. Let me ask you a question. <laughs> Do you think this, I, I, I'm sure you have, and I have yeah. imagined the thing you would say to the person. If you ever said the thing that you haven't said to them, <laughs> you know, many, many times. Yeah. So my question for you is this language. Yeah. Was this in his head before he met Joey? Oh yeah, I think so. Absolutely. Been in there a long time. Yeah, I think it's he's wanted to push back on his dad probably for a while when he's trotted out that stuff. 
And so this finally, because it doesn't seem like Mr. Prentice and Mrs. Prentice have the best of relationships. And because of the hardships of growing up in this country as a black couple, I can't imagine, you know, if we did a backstory with them. Um, Because I imagine their boys and Barry trip would be completely different than Spencer Tracy's boys and Barry trip, to be honest with you, if we were to do a scene. Oh, yeah. Of course it would. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And so, so you get that. So you sense that there's this kind of weight there. And so, I think, um, yeah. 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 So uh, two thoughts. The first one is, I think, I don't think he, maybe we could say he never would have done this with dad if it weren't for Joey. Yeah. Like, I think he maybe would have just held it in forever. And now he's got, sees an opportunity for happiness like he never saw before. And now dad is standing in the way of that. Yeah. That's one thought I had. Here's the other thought I had. You know, you mentioned the horrible, uh, remake thing yeah, yeah you know it'd be a really interesting remake is the prentice family flying up to meet the yeah. white family and see their world sure and they're and like they're going like what clothes should we wear yeah you know and what are these people going to be like and see the whole thing from their perspective because this is like 85 percent the drayton family mm-hmm. and 15 percent the prentice family it's like well what if you flipped it yeah. And we saw just were in their world and really saw what their lives were like and who they really were. Mm-hmm. It'd be an interesting movie. It's a good point. Yeah. I would like to see that. Gorgeous silhouettes of Spencer Tracy kind of walking through his terrace thinking Joey is up with mom and Joey continues to just be like, everything's going to be great. Yeah. And she says, you've just got to talk John's parents into flying over with you. It would mean so much to John to have them there. And, and I know that they can afford it. And I'm like, you know, we've had this conversation before yeah. as a person who has some money, rich people being totally insensitive about what people can and cannot afford. Yeah. Bugs me, you know? Yeah, that's true. That's a great point. I mean, the, the people that can afford to just take a trip to Europe next week. Yeah. I don't know what sacrifice that would mean. We, we're just saying she couldn't have a nice coat, you know? Yeah. And then again, we're back with dad outside and he's walking and he looks at mike and mrs prentice and through the window and he's thinking and the music makes a shift the music makes a shift from a minor key to a major key um which is a real sign that something is changing yeah i should be able to say something to you mrs prentice in my trade there are a hundred cliche phrases of comfort for every human condition but in the midst of this heartbreaking distress I must admit, I'm completely stumped. There's simply nothing I could say. And then Mr. Prentice starts to talk, and she shuts him down. Mm -hmm. Mary, you've just got to understand Please, John. The man saying you is right, please say no more. (laughs) Yeah, the man of God is right. Yeah. Well, she just told her husband to shut up. Yeah, basically. After after his son told him to shut up. Right. Mr. Prentice, there are some there are some lessons, long overdue lessons you're starting to learn about your family now. Apparently. Yeah. Back outside with Mike, the camera is pushing in. We hear the glory of love. A camera comes into a close-up and he says, I'll be a son of a bitch. <laughs> and turns and goes inside. And he comes face to face with John, and man, they stare at each other. Close the door, Mr. Drayton. And this is you're seeing the power, the Sidney Poitier stare. Yeah. You didn't have the guts to tell me face to face, did you? 
here's the question. Has he decided to take the ultimatum away and say, we're getting married regardless of what you say? Oh, I don't know. That's you, what I you, think. Okay. That's what I think. Okay. I, obviously, we don't know, but that, that, right, that right, is right. what I think. Now, before you start telling me how much guts I've got, I told you I'd have something to say. Now I'm ready to say it. Are you going to stay in here? Upstairs, Chris is trying to to soften the blow that she knows is coming. And as she's just about to kind of say, look, don't be surprised if your dad goes the other way, he calls up to her. Christina, what are you doing up there? Joey, come on down here, both of you. Now we're gathering everyone in the living room, and it is time for the speech. So you know how I said that Spencer Tracy missed a lot of days. He only worked maybe two hours to four hours a day. He was very, very ill. He worked six straight days, six to seven hours a day on this speech. Wow. And that he was frequently out of breath, frequently had to stop mid-speech and sit down. They had to shoot it in little tiny pieces because he couldn't remember the lines. Wow. And because he just wasn't strong enough to do, he couldn't do the whole speech straight. He didn't have the, he didn't have the energy. He didn't have the, he didn't have the lung capacity to do it. What's so strange hearing about this, I think he looks, he has so much energy throughout the whole, I would never have suspected the guy was sick. True. He just seems so powerful and alive through this whole thing. But apparently this was like a, everyone on the set said this was like a heroic act, him putting it together to make this speech. Um, they also use a lot of body doubles. So anytime it's on his back, that's not probably not him. And then they even did the thing where they would take the audio from one take and put it over the video from another mm. take. Like this was a super, super tricky editing thing hmm. because they only had this part of this line is good. Yeah. This part of that moment is good. I have a few things to say and you might just think they're important. Hold on. Let me stop there. Sure. I have a thing, few things to say. You might just think it's important. You said something in part one about the straight white rich man making a speech. And I think that is very much what this is. Yeah, it is. I mean, I don't know if the straight part matters so much, but he, but it is very much like I am the most important person in this room. Yes. And now I will tell you the truth. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. that is what this scene is. Yeah. The day began for me when I walked into this house and Tilly said to me, "Uh, excuse me. And then he realizes Tilly's part of this too. So he goes and gets Tilly, introduces her. The minute I walked into this house this afternoon, Miss Bink said to me, uh, well, all hell done broke loose now. I asked her naturally enough to what she referred, and she said, you'll see. And I did. So he's going to replay kind of the events and yeah. all the things that bombarded him, and it's kind of fun. Well, I think it's fair to say that I responded to this uh, news in the same manner that any normal father would respond to it, unless, of course, his daughter happened to be a Negro, too. In a word, I was flabbergasted. And while I was still being flabbergasted... And this is where he tells about the schedule. He tells about the ultimatum. My wife, typically enough, decided to simply ignore every practical aspect of the situation and was carried away in some kind of a romantic haze which made her, in my view, totally inaccessible to anything in the way of reason. I could see lots of thoughts going on in your mind. Oh, yeah. No, I was listening. I was listening. (laughs) It is such a uh, I'm the only reasonable person in the room speech. Yeah. I mean, telling his daughter to shut up. Now he's going to basically verbally undress his wife for her reactions to everything Mm -hmm. and kind of blame everyone else for putting this on him. And then he's going to deliver his very astute point of view. 
And look, it's a beautiful, it's great speech and it's beautifully delivered. Yeah. I think it is. And, and it gets me every time, yeah. every single time I watch yeah. it, I cry. Yeah. I think it's absolutely, I think Spencer Tracy is pitch fucking perfect yep. through the whole speech. Yep. I think um, he knew, like you yeah. said, Steve, six days in a row, Herculean effort. Oh, I he think knew. he knew. This is the end. I'm going to deliver a great, great monologue. Now, Mr. Prentice, clearly a most reasonable man, says he has no wish to offend me, but wants to know if I'm some kind of a nut. And Mrs. Prentice says that like her husband, I'm a burnt out old shell of a man who cannot even remember what it's like to love a woman the way her son loves my daughter. And he stands up and then he says, And strange as it seems, that's the first statement made to me all day with which I am prepared to take issue. The way that he says the next line, I think, sums up, crystallizes what kind of a great actor Spencer Tracy is. Yeah. He says, Because I think you're wrong. You're as wrong as you can be. It is just such a, I am telling you the truth. Yeah. There's nothing, there's no layers to it. There's no, it's just... This is as honest as it could be. And of course, we're cutting to the reaction shots of everyone, and they're all great. Mm-hmm. But every time Catherine Hepburn's in the frame, I'll cry. Yeah. Because what's happening? With, because, and, and part of it is knowing that this is the man she loves and that he's dying yeah. while he's delivering it, combined with the fact that this is a character delivering a very romantic and lovely speech. It's just really powerful. I admit that I hadn't considered it, hadn't even thought about it. But I know exactly how he feels about her. And there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that your son feels for my daughter that I didn't feel for Christina. It's the best. Yeah. I'm getting I'm I'm getting teary-eyed just having just reading the lines off mm-hmm. my notes. Mm-hmm. It's is such a beautiful delivery of his and, and it's you know what else I think is really interesting about this speech? Yeah. It's really unexpected. And you know what this speech really isn't about? It's not about race. Right. This speech is about his love for his wife. It's about love, not race. Old, yes. Burned out, certainly. But I can tell you, the memories are still there. Clear, intact, indestructible. And they'll be there if I live to be 110. The way this shot is framed, when he says that, it'll be there if I live to be 110, Catherine Hepburn's in the background, out of focus, crying, and it's just, again, it's these worlds colliding of the real world with the movie world. Yeah. Where John made his mistake, I think, was attaching so much importance to what her mother and I might think. Because in the final analysis, it doesn't matter damn what we think. The only thing that matters is what they feel. And if it's half of what we felt, that's everything. What are you thinking, John? Just that you're wrong. It is Sidney Poitier's film in this moment. (laughs) (laughs) Because Spencer Tracy just said, it doesn't matter what we think. So it was never about whether they were going to approve or not approve the marriage. And even he admits it here in this moment and says, you know, it's more about what they feel. And if they feel as much as we felt or half as much as we felt, then, um, then they're fine. They're going to be fine. Uh, and again, I don't know what I can add to the fact that this is a fantastic speech. And the only person 
he does kind of dress down a little bit is Mrs. Prentice only because she questioned his love for his, his love. Yeah. And, and, and that's not something he could agree with. The other things he could explore this, he knew deeply how much he loved his wife. Well, so, yeah. it, it's weird because it is both him disagreeing with her and him complimenting her. Yes. Because it's her saying she was the one who said the most persuasive thing to it. Right. That clicked. You know, yeah. Yeah. You met, you said something that clicked, although I disagree with it. Right. Um, and this is why you're wrong, John. Um, <laughs> so it, like I said, it, in terms of the world, yes. this is totally the story of the young couple and of Sidney Poitier. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. In terms of film structure, all of the tension is around what will dad do? And it is his decision that the whole movie is building to. Mm-hmm. So like if you go, you know, like if you're in screenwriting class, you get the, they'll ask you the question all the time. Who is this movie about? And in mm-hmm. classic screenwriting, it's about one person. Now, I have issues with that because I think it's overly simplistic. And maybe this is a good example. But if you were to ask that question, it's all about Spencer Tracy and what decision he'll make. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think where we both do agree, well, I love this speech. The most powerful scene is Sidney Poitier and his dad. Yes. You know? Yeah. The most moving thing is the speech. From yes. Me. Spencer Tracy looks at Catherine Hepburn. And I'm going to say it that way. Spencer Tracy looks at Catherine Hepburn. She's crying. He holds her gaze, smiles, and he says, As for you two and the problems you're going to have, they seem almost unimaginable. But you'll have no problem with me. And I think that uh, when Christina and I and your mother have some time to work on him, you'll have no problem with your father, John. Which is a weird thing to say. (laughs) Like, like you just met this dude. <laughs> yeah, but it happens. And I'll tell you this um, from my own personal experience. Two of my friends, uh, I won't say their last names, but Andre and my best friend, Maurice, uh, married white women. Mm-hmm. And I was at both of their weddings. And I saw what the white father of the brides did at both of those weddings. The shamelessness of them. Mm-hmm. It led to... Uh, the father and the mother of the bride divorcing in both situations. Oh, wow. Yes. Um, And it was like that scene from dragon when they each had their babies. Oh, the mother then realized how important this relationship was. And that the, and when the father did not come around to agree, the divorces quickly happened on both situations. It was really weird. Wow. And so this idea of other people working on the father so that they can so that he can come around to the situation is important. And I think this uh, when I saw the movie and I didn't know about all that other stuff. Right. Because I didn't I had met those two. Well, I'd met Maurice, I guess, but I had met Andre yet. But like I didn't know that that was something that was going to resonate like later in life right. when I saw it actually happen. And so, yeah, it's very because the father in the first marriage did not speak about the husband at all Ooh. in his wedding speech at the wedding. Just talk, talked about his daughter. That's it. The other father refused to deliver a speech praising the marriage, yet showed up, which is mind-blowing to me. So, so yeah. I'll, I'll tell you a bit of my philosophy. Maybe yeah. I've said this before. It's not that for people that I love, it's not that I wouldn't express my opinion if I disagreed with the choice that they're going to make. Right. Depending on the relationship, in a way that was gentle, I might express my opinion. Sure. But I believe that my job with the people I love is to support them in whatever choices they make and in whatever way they think they're going to be happy, even if I don't agree. Yeah. Like, it's that's why I go, like, maybe I'd say, hey, you know, there could be some drawbacks to this. Right. 
But then once they make the decision, all like your only job is to be the fucking cheerleader yeah. and to support them. Because what you're creating in the story that you're telling is that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. Right. Exactly. You know, you are adding to the thing that you're warning them against. Yeah. You know, it's a great point, Steve. Absolutely. And and by the way, both of those marriage marriages still intact. Oh, that's great. That's great to hear. But you do know, I'm sure you know what you're up against. There'll be a hundred million people right here in this country who will be shocked and offended and appalled at the two of you. And the two of you will just have to ride that out. Maybe every day for the rest of your lives. I think this is perfectly reasonable to say. Mm. You know, this is the thing that should be talked about. You can try to ignore those people. Or you can feel sorry for them and for their prejudices and their bigotry and their blind hatreds and stupid fears. But were necessary. And I love this line. I think it's great. You'll just have to cling tight to each other and say, screw all those people. <laughs> I don't know how hard it was to get screw all those people in this movie, but it's great. <laughs> but you're two wonderful people who happen to fall in love and happen to have a pigmentation problem. It's an interesting line. Yeah. And I think that now, no matter what kind of a case some bastard could make against you getting married, there would be only one thing worse. And that would be if, knowing what you two are, knowing what you two have, and knowing what you two feel, you didn't get married. It's a it's a perfect resolution to the tensions we've been feeling this whole time. Yeah. You know, and it's funny, my note here is every shot of Catherine Hepburn makes me cry. <laughs> um, and then he says, after this incredible seven, eight minute speech says, well, Tilly, when the hell are we going to get some dinner? And Catherine Hepburn goes to him and they walk slowly into the dining room and the credits roll as they sit down to dinner. That's the story of... That's the glory of love. So after shooting this scene, Spencer Tracy went up to Stanley Kramer and said, if I die going home today, you've got it. You've got the film. Wow. Nothing else matters. Stanley Kramer hugged him. Mm. They both cried. Stanley Kramer's wife was on the set, said she had never seen him cry before. Wow. This is the first time she ever saw her husband cry. The only other time she saw him cry in her life, yeah. in his life, was at Spencer Tracy's funeral. Oh. Um, some things that happened after. Mm -hmm. So there was a big cast party two days later. Catherine Hepburn went. Spencer Tracy didn't. Instead, he stayed home and called every one of his friends to tell them, I did it. Wow. Two weeks later, uh, he got up in the middle of the night to have a cup of tea, and he had a heart attack and collapsed and died immediately, two weeks after wrapping this movie. Wow. The story that was told was that he was discovered by his housekeeper, hmm. but that is not what happened. Hmm. What actually happened is that Catherine Hepburn had a, a, a wire running from a microphone in his room to where she slept, and she heard the teacup fall and heard him collapse. Oh. She found him dead. She called up her assistant and said, Spencer's dead. Have movers come to the house and move away every single trace that I've ever lived here. Wow. Before Spencer Tracy's wife comes over. Oh, my God. Movers came. They started to move things out. And then she changed her mind and said, no, put everything back. 
God. The wife came over and Catherine Hepburn said, we can be friends. We both love the same man. We can be friends. And she said, we could, the wife, Spencer Tracy's wife said, we could, but up until this moment, I thought you were a rumor. Wow. Now, I don't, that's the only quote. I just have that quote. So I don't know if that was sarcastic. I don't know if that was really true. I don't know right. what she thought. Wow. 600 people went to the funeral. Mm-hmm. Uh, the pallbearers for Spencer Tracy's coffin were Stanley Kramer, George Kukar, Frank Sinatra, Jimmy Stewart, John Ford, and Stanley Kramer's agent. That's who mm. carried the coffin. Wow. Catherine Hepburn didn't go to the funeral. Really? What yep. was because of the wife to respect the other wife or just couldn't handle respect it? for the wife? Yeah. Wow. Interesting. She kept the, she kept the lie going to the funeral. Huh. The same day as Spencer Tracy's funeral, the decision from the Supreme court on loving versus Virginia came out making interracial marriage legal throughout the United States. Wow. The next day, Lyndon Johnson nominated Thurgood Marshall to the Supreme court. Huh. Oh, man. The movie came out. It had poor reviews. It was a huge hit. Yeah. It's the biggest hit ever for Columbia. Um, it, but what it really, but Stanley Kramer thought it was going to sell to young audiences <laughs> and it, who were into Sidney Poitier and this interracial relationship. And in fact, it's the opposite. It's sold to old audiences <laughs> who were desperate to see Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy in, yeah. in their final film together. Kramer was furious. It sounds like with every one of, he was always a guy, he made these important issue movies, but he never got the artistic recognition that he wanted. Yeah. So, cause his movies were never like the great films. They were always important films. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he really was upset that the young youth culture didn't get it. So he decided to tour universities with guess who's coming to dinner and answer questions to try to get the youth, the young people to understand his film. Wow. It's a big mistake. It did not go well. <laughs> they, it was a lot of booing and laughing and, you know, because this is a, this is a film. This is an older Hollywood film. That is what yeah. it is. You know, yeah. you know, and you know, people it's generational, isn't it? Like you want to see, do the right thing. You don't want to see green book. You know, these are the things that you look at and this is a safe movie about race, but mm-hmm. it's an important movie about race. Yeah. Absolutely. But it's a safe movie, our race. Like B. Yes. Richards might have said, you know, this is a movie that sugarcoats it when there's a thing, there's a harder edge to take, there's a harder reality to face here. Uh, and so no surprise that young people who were rebelling against the old people big time back in the late 60s uh, would not be uh, into a movie like this. Yeah. So the biggest box office movie of the year was The Graduate. Mm-hmm. But the I might have been the next three biggest were the Sydney Poitier movies. Guess who's coming to dinner in the heat of the night and um, to serve with love. Just this is off the topic, but to serve with love didn't have a big budget. And so Sydney Poitier made a deal to do it for 10 percent of the gross small salary and 10 percent of the gross. Right. It was such a gigantic hit. The the contract read, well, whatever 10 percent is, we'll pay Sydney Poitier in increments of twenty five thousand dollars a year. <laughs> Because this is a small movie, so they didn't expect it to have huge box office. They figured out that if they did that, it would take 80 years to pay Sidney Poitier how much they owed him. That's how much money he made off of that one movie. Wow. Wow. So the Oscars are coming up. This movie is nominated for a bunch of stuff. And uh, the Oscars are scheduled for April 8th, 1968. And on April 4th is when Martin Luther King was killed. Wow. 
So a lot of people, all the young people said, just cancel it. We just shouldn't have the Oscars. Yeah, I think I remember that. Yeah. yeah. And the old guard, the older generation said, what are you talking about? Like, we, we don't cancel the Oscars. We should have it. Finally, they convinced them to postpone it two days. So it was going to be on the 10th instead of the 8th. Right. Because at first, none of the African-American people were going to come at all. And a lot of the young uh, movie stars and directors and writers, they weren't going to come in support of those issues. Mm-hmm. They did schedule it. They have it. Bob Hope was the host. Sounds like he was very, very tone deaf to what was going on. He made a bunch of jokes of how silly it was to talk about postponing the Oscars. A lot of kind of kids these days jokes. There was a montage. You and I both love montages of yes. the Oscars. The final shot of the montage was the Confederate flag at the end of Gone with the Wind. Oof. Yeah. So really, it's just apparently just dead silence in the audience when that played. Good God. Um the movie was nominated for Best Picture, Director, Actor, Supporting Actor for Cecil Calloway, uh, and Bea Richards yeah. was nominated. Screenplay, Art Direction, Editing, and Song. It's a really weird night because the first Oscar goes to George Kennedy for Cool Hand Luke, and that's yeah. like an old Hollywood thing. And then Camelot took a lot of awards, which it doesn't make it. It's not a good movie. It's not. I, I like the musical, but the movie's not very good. Yeah. Then Mike Nichols gets the award for Best Director. Right. So this Best is director. all over the place. Yeah. Um, Rod Steiger then wins for in the heat of the night for actor. And basically in his speech, his, almost his whole speech is thanking Sidney Poitier for what he taught him about race and that, uh, and then Sidney Poitier gets up to present the award for best actress and someone who thought they would no way win one. And that is Catherine Hepburn. Yeah. The nominations for best picture are Dr. Doolittle, which was just like they that's totally one where they just campaigned and the studio put a lot of money into a campaign yeah. to get it nominated it shouldn't have been nominated uh the graduate bonnie and clyde heat of the night and of course heat of the night won best picture and uh original screenplay was won by this as well yeah and then this is where potier said basically he was tired of the pressure he didn't want to be the central focus he knew the world was changing he felt trapped and he basically said he told Catherine houghton he was tired of acting and he felt that directing was the only way to bring more African-American characters onto the screen. And that is what he did. Yeah. And that is incredible because that shows you right there, which a lot of people know and understand now is like, if you want to bring more diversity to film, you've got to be the person yeah. in control of casting, directing, producing, what writing, you know, in some instances so that you can bring those people on. And Spike is, Spike Lee, who we're going to be talking about later on in the cinephiles here in the upcoming weeks, he is one of those guys that like that was such a drive for him. Denzel as well likes to have a a bunch of people who are black or people of color to work on the production, to work uh, on camera, to do all of those things, because it's important to change uh, and give opportunities to other people. And so how um, prescient of Sidney Poitier in that moment to realize at the height of his career. Yep. To yep. realize, you know what? I've done what I can do. I've won the Oscar. I've accomplished it. Now I want to give back to my community by becoming a person who can cast more actors, cast more people, yep. hire people of color to do these jobs to show that we can do them as well. That's great. That's what you you, you said something in our last part of, of just the ridiculousness of blaming Sidney Poitier yeah. for the roles that he has. And this is exactly the, is that the only way to be to change things is to be in charge. Yes. You know, yeah. as an actor, you're always at the whim of the other people that are writing the script, choosing the material, directing the script, editing the movie. 
that's who that's who's got more power it's not that actors can't give amazing performances yeah. and don't wield power i don't mean that right. but you know there's yeah. as as captain picard said there's no substitute for the big chair you know <laughs> that's true that's a good point um i will give my final thoughts first sure the movie totally works for me i love watching spencer tracy i love katherine hepburn i love sydney poitier i enjoy the movie I have very strong feelings about what the movie isn't. And with my students, that's always the worst kind of criticism you can give to like someone working on their own project is this is the movie I would make if I was making your movie. And so I don't, it's not that the criticisms aren't worth discussing. It's that they're not things that are wrong with the film. It's things that what the movie isn't. And the two big scenes for me Sidney Poitier and his dad, which is so complicated and powerful. And Spencer Tracy making that speech, man. Yeah. It's going to get me every single time. Yeah. So those are my final thoughts. What about you? I think this is one of those films that will never lose its classic status for what it symbolized at that time in 1967. And it serves as a cultural touchstone of a, uh, in the world of film. Uh, and I think it's an important film to keep revisiting and reexamining and looking at and talking about every few years to see the patterns repeating themselves in some ways and to see other pa- to see the belief in the hope of the youth changing things. Mm. All of that there also to reacquaint yourself with the greatness of a new young actor in his prime like Sidney Poitier and the greatness of two young actors exiting the stage in Catherine Hepburn and right. Um, uh, Spencer Tracy and a, a phenomenal director as well coming yeah. towards the tail end of his career as well. Stanley Kramer, who did incredibly important work with the work that he did as a director that always seems to get forgotten here. It was an important film because of everybody yeah. that started in it, but also you had the right director at the right time to create a classic like this. And I think it's, and I hope it resonates with people still. And I hope it's something that people can go back to and appreciate and enjoy for the different perspectives. And I think the groundbreaking gutsy perspectives that you saw in this movie from people of color, from black people, rather from white people, from different financial strata, from different uh, motivations. You saw it all. If you stripped away all the color, it's still a father, son, father, daughter, mother, daughter, mother, son type of uh, uh, interaction that goes on here. But adding the color element, the pigmentation, as Spencer Tracy said, takes it to a whole nother level and makes it an important and resonant film that still matters. It still matters. It is not a throwaway film about race. It is absolutely a very important film about race. And I hope it's taught for many, many generations to come. Not only do I agree with all that, but now I have something else to say. Sure. Uh, Which is, which is that if, if the knock on this film is that it doesn't speak to the young people, Mm -hmm. then what, uh, Monsignor Mike says about we they they are changing the world. Yeah. They are the country. Yeah. Is really the most important point is that those aren't the people that this movie was trying to convince. Yeah. Is that forcing particularly white liberals to say, would you put your money where your mouth is? How do you really yeah. feel about this and examine this thing? That's what's moving the ball forward. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, there, there, it's there are other movies that, like in the heat of the night, that are going to do other things. Right. But for this, is like the power structure needed yeah. to see this movie to change their minds. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah. 
So that's what we think of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Of course, we'd love to hear what you think. You could visit us on our Facebook page, on Twitter, on Instagram. There are all sorts of places to subscribe to the show. You know what all of them are, but you also should know that a review would mean a lot, particularly on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Comments on YouTube are great. You can buy or stream Guess Who's Coming to Dinner on cinephiles.net. You can support the show at patreon.com slash the cinephiles. You can find me at srmorris on Twitter, srmorris1 on Instagram, and, you know, Star Trek is also dealing with issues of race, and there are a couple of big episodes particularly coming up in season three, and you can listen to some of that stuff on Enterprise Incidents. John, how would people find you? Oh, you can always find me at the Roca Says on Twitter, Instagram, and now TikTok. But I'm doing I'm putting little mini reviews on TikTok. I'm calling them my quick draw reviews, two minutes and 20 seconds. I'm trying something new, putting some clips up of old interviews and things like that. So please follow me there and also on Twitch the outlaw nation all one word doing a lot of stuff there watch alongs play alongs the john and wendy show and then of course my own youtube channel youtube.com slash john roca says for all the stuff we got going on over there pre-produced and live videos and finally my other podcasts the top 10 and the geek buddies they're out there for you all to download and enjoy so that is it for this week we will see you next time for another great film on the cinephiles Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.